southern Florida, along with a number of others. We have the pleasure of welcoming someone who is no stranger to any of us. She's come, she spoke before, and she's back again today. Nancy, I'll turn it over to you now. Good morning. I'm going to be sharing something a little, bit, a little bit different today than I usually share. Usually I um, teach out of my coaching practice or out of the, uh, the corporate training that I do, things like personality and, and other things. And when Mike asked me to speak today, I felt that God wanted me to share something personal, which is a little unnerving for me because it, it's not something that I'm accustomed to. So it puts me way out of my comfort zone and that's okay. That's the work that God is doing in my life. But at the time when he asked me, I really didn't know what I was going to talk about. And, um, and then God gave me something to talk about. <laughs> so I'm going to invite you into my journey of faith. Um, this has probably been in the works like my entire life, um, just sort of brought to highlight by some recent experiences. So today I want to talk about when God disappoints us. And I'm going to say right up front, I don't have the answer. I don't maybe even have an answer. I only know what God has been showing me, and this is definitely a work in progress. So... Um, I hope that it, it resonates with you a little bit. It's really just my story. So this is the typical process that I go through, and, and it's probably not unique to me, when I'm pursuing a goal or a dream. It starts with an idea, something that may have been in your heart for a long time, maybe something that God births in you when he speaks to you, but it has to start with some kind of, hey, I'd really like to do this. So then you make a decision, because sometimes these ideas are things that are 25 years out, but at some point you make a decision, I'm going to pursue this idea now. Now is the time. And if you're like me, you'll make it measurable, you'll make it a smart goal, because you want to know when you've actually achieved that goal or that dream or that idea. Then you start to imagine what it could be like when you finally achieve that goal or that dream. You start to think about the impacts on you, how much better your life is going to be, uh, how great it will be, how things will look. And while you may not vocalize them, or this may even be a subconscious process, you begin to create expectations of what that idea will look like when it's finally put into place. And then... Some of you, like me, will plan. Others will not. You'll just jump right into initiation. You'll start with whatever the idea is. So you do what you need to do. And you may find right away that you start to see some results. It's like, whoa, this is working. Things are starting to happen. God seems to be blessing this. And you have the sense of celebration. I am on the right track. And... Uh, and God is definitely in this because things are going well. And then you might start to predict or extrapolate, well, if things keep up at this rate, then this is what's going to happen then, and then this is going to happen. And you start mapping it out into a little bit of a path for yourself because 
it's all working just the way you want. And then, because life doesn't always go smoothly and work out the way you expect, you may experience some kind of crisis. So maybe your investors pull out and your startup tanks, as happened to me twice. Um, maybe that person that you thought God showed you was the one um, decides they don't want to pursue the relationship, or maybe they don't return your feelings. Maybe the job that looked ideal when you took it has turned out to be something very different and doesn't suit you at all. Or maybe you finally get pregnant after years of trying only to lose the baby a couple of months later. Or maybe the match in heaven that everybody thought was perfect ends in divorce after 25 years. Whatever the situation, and you've probably all had them, you hit some kind of crisis that knocks you back on your haunches and brings disillusionment and disappointment and often causes a re-evaluation about the idea and where you started. And so while sometimes a crisis does create a continuation with maybe some differences, you go back to the decision, maybe you change some things, probably equally as often you end up stopping. So the vision, the idea, the goal that you started with, you've hit the wall and that's the end. And when that happens, it's natural to experience these feelings of disappointment and depression and, and confusion. How could this happen to me? And, and anger. And while we may not always admit it, a lot of times, at least in my case, those things are directed at God. So I've had a number of, of these cycles in my life, and I would have told you until very recently that I had worked through them. They no longer bothered me. And then I had another God idea that uh, showed me that actually maybe I wasn't quite as beyond them as I thought. So after more than 30 years of sedentary living and uh, working in an office, three pregnancies and then going through menopause over the last decade, my weight had ballooned to almost 60 pounds higher than when I got married. And over the years, I had dieted a few times, succeeded in losing weight, but failed to keep it off. And I heard a wow, and I, I agree, when I stepped on the scale and went, what? It was like, wow. So over the summer, God put an idea in my head. Actually, it was more than an idea. It was an unshakable conviction in my heart that I needed to take charge of my health, and I needed to do it now. I don't know why I felt such an urgency. Only God knows we don't know what's going on in our bodies, but it was undeniably God. It was one of those, I know that I have to do this. And I came across a book that claimed that I could lose a pound a day. So when you got almost 60 pounds that you're looking at, you're like, whew. So for obvious reasons, I made the decision, okay, this rapid weight loss program that I'm seeing, which was actually based on a very healthy uh, plan, of lots of lean proteins and vegetables and fruits and minimal carbs, so it wasn't, wasn't a crazy diet. Um, so for obvious reasons, that rapid loss was like appealing to me to get to my ideal weight, which, of course, my ideal weight was my wedding weight, because who wouldn't want to be back where I started 32 years ago? So because of the significant time uh, commitment needed to prepare um, 
for the food prep and, and eat, I decided to pursue it once my contract was over at the end of August, which I did. I, I took a sabbatical. So in having made that decision, in having my book that laid it all out for me, because I love structure and organization, and this thing gave me the plans, I had some pretty high expectations, and I tried not to. As much as I, as I could, it was like, no, I'm not going to count on a pound a day, but you know what? I counted on a pound a day. And when Mike asked me to speak, I, um, I'll get into that in a, in a second, never mind. So I started planning. Melissa knows. I created this Excel spreadsheet with this very detailed meal, meal plan. I had it all for the next six weeks, exactly what I was going to eat every day. I went shopping for foods that I'd never eaten before because I'm not a veggie person. And... Um, and, and basically had to mentally prepare myself that this was going to be a dramatic deviation from how I had eaten in the past. So I started the plan on September 4th. And sure enough, on days one and two, I lost a pound each, just like the book said. And not only that, but by day three, I had lost another two pounds. So it was going even better than I expected. So you can believe I was celebrating. Because finally I had a plan that was actually going to work for me. And so I really got into this prediction. And what I was going to say earlier was when Mike asked me to speak on October 21st, I did the calculation that by October 21st, I'd be standing up here 40 pounds lighter than when I started. Like, it was going to happen, right? So 10 pounds by this day and 20 pounds by this day, and it was just going to keep going. And okay, I wasn't going to count on four pounds in three days, but a pound a day, like this was going to be the case. So, um, yeah, it didn't quite work out the way I expected. I hit the wall. Day five, um, got on the scale, no change. It's like, well, okay, the body is just making up for the fact that I lost two pounds on, on the previous day. But I started this process of a yo-yo where gain a pound, lose a pound, gain a pound, lose a pound. And with this plan, you're supposed to weigh yourself every day. So I felt every excruciating moment of stepping on the scale every day. And I was following the plan to the letter. I was being more active than ever before in my entire life. I was doing everything right. So there was absolutely no reason that this plan should not be working. Moreover, this was not my idea. This was God's initiation. And when God initiates it, it better be successful, right? So... I got really discouraged, I got frustrated and angry, and fell right back into disappointment with God in something else that he started that didn't work just like all the other times. Which clearly meant that I had not worked through the other times as much as I thought I had. Because this was like, oh, here we go again. I'm sure it's obvious that this is not really about a diet, because the reactions I had were not were not based just on how the plan was going. It was based on years and years and years of unresolved disappointments with things that I felt God had initiated that had tanked. And I had uh, thought I'd, I'd dealt with them, 
but obviously not. So in the middle of my disillusionment with the most current example, Mike did a talk on faith. And he talked about, this was September, he talked about faith is trust. So I asked myself, do I really trust God? And how do I measure that? So one measure of trust often used in the corporate world is an activity called a trust fall. Some of you may have actually participated in this thing. Basically, one person stands in front of another, the, first, the front person falls back, and the person behind them is supposed to catch them. So those who trust their partner fully will just fall back easily and relax and, and not even think about it. And those who have any kind of trust issues will choose to either fall, not fall at all, or catch themselves just before they fall. And it's, it's very interesting when you're an observer watching a group of people doing this, you can tell who's, who's really having trouble trusting. So I thought to myself, well, what if I was doing a trust fall with God? How readily would I fall back into his arms? And while I'd love to tell you that I would eagerly and unquestionably fling myself back, the honest and, and rather embarrassing answer is I would be hesitating. And I don't like that answer. So I had to ask myself, why? Well, because I would be afraid it would look something like this. Not that God would say, oops, he'd just go, he, he might be looking somewhere else and, oh crap, forgot to catch her, kind of thing. Because when I think about letting go, I have this vague sense that in the past he has broken my trust and he's let me down multiple times. So if I fall back, maybe he'll catch me and maybe he won't because he's unreliable and unpredictable which really means that in the past, all those times of disappointment, I had a specific outcome in mind that he did not meet. So I expected and he disappointed. After Mike talked about the faith of God and trust, I realized that I had just buried the disappointments of those past experience under things like, well, I don't really care. It doesn't matter. Or better yet, the ways of God are higher than our ways and beyond our understanding. And while that's true and it's scriptural, it really didn't do it for me. I needed to know why. <laughs> why did this happen? So even though, so what I didn't realize was in not resolving them, my subconscious was actually building a case, disproving the love of God and undermining my faith. So even though I wanted to trust God, these past disappointments had sowed serious doubts and eroded my trust. And a deep wounding occurs in our souls when, when we judge God untrustworthy. So with the health plan in my face as just a current disappointment, over the last, I'll say, seven weeks, I've, I've come to understand as I've reflected and talked to God and journaled that in many cases when I've embarked on something that actually was God inspired. Somewhere along the way, it's gone from God inspired, God breathed, God initiated to the faith of Nancy 
to make it happen. So in other words, the root of my disappointment wasn't God, but rather the law that I'm living under. So faith of Nancy is actually the law that says, if I do this, then God will do that. So if I pray enough, if I have enough faith, if I read my Bible more, if I give more, then God will do these things. It's being a scorekeeper. I've been a scorekeeper. Maintaining subconsciously a list of debits and credits. God says, the Bible says tithe. If you tithe, I'll open the storehouse and pour on you a blessing that you can't contain. Haven't seen it. Don't know why it isn't true, but that's what the scriptures say. So grew up in that system, the name it, claim it system. If you just say it often enough, it'll come your way. I was born in the Catholic Church, then in the Evangelical Church. And so learned that this is the way life works. Now, I'm not talking about my identity because I am secure in who I am. I'm no longer concerned about what people think of me. My identity is intrinsic, and I'll talk more about that later. I'm talking about when you go to do something that God puts in your heart or that is in your heart, how do you approach it? And in my case, if I did the plan, I earned my pound a day, and there was no reason that that shouldn't be working. So then I came across this scripture that said, the law system that I was operating under to make things happen is bound to bring about disappointment, regret, and anger. I'm like, holy smokes, that's exactly what happened. It is obligated. It is wired to. It is guaranteed to bring about disappointment. When I operate under the if I do, then God will, I will be, it, it's a promise, I will be disappointed and feel regret and be angry. And I can testify that's absolutely true. Because with the law, when I'm operating with that mindset of law, there are always expectations that will never be met. Especially when I'm the one setting the expectations based on my own imagination. So it may start with God but it, it ends with, or it continues with, me, my personal performance. And this verse says, faith would be emptied of its substance and the principle of promise would be meaningless if the law of personal performance was still in play. So when I'm operating under personal performance, I render faith and the promises of God meaningless. Ouch. Now, if you go back a, a previous verse, it makes it even clearer. If those who get what, God's give them, what God gives them only get it by doing everything they are told to do and filling out all the right forms properly signed, that eliminates personal trust completely and turns the promise into an ironclad contract. That's not a holy promise. That's a business deal. And that was a double ouch for me because... I like doing everything I'm told to do. I'm a rule follower. I like structure. I like organization. When I fill out all the right forms and check off my to-do list, I'm really happy because I know I haven't missed anything. But this tells me that that approach that I just do so naturally because of my personality and my training 
eliminates personal trust. It doesn't need personal trust because the, the execution of that contract and the outcomes that the contract promises have nothing to do with trust. You're not trusting the other person. You're trusting the contract, the paperwork. Another version, the Mirror Bible says, it's a matter of embracing a gift rather than receiving a reward for keeping the law. So when you want to talk about the faith of God, the faith that God has, it's embracing a gift rather than receiving a reward or earning it. So I'm a list person. I like lists. And so, of course, in my own analytical way, I had to contrast and compare the two ways of operating, the faith of Nancy, which is law, versus the faith of God, which is grace. So under law, it's all, all these things are about doing. As I perform, as I do what I think I should do, I get the rewards. I earn the results. Under grace, I don't do anything that isn't shown to me by God. I just rest. I just be. I just chill. He performs, not me, and I receive his undeserved gift. Under law, I envision specific outcomes that in my limited understanding I think are best for me. Under grace, I leave the exact outcome, the way it looks, up to him, and what he knows is best based on his full knowledge, not my partial knowledge. So under law, I'm going to set expectations and plans, as I've done so many times. Under grace, I'm learning. I can be expectant in God's best, but it's best if I wait for his plan. Under law, I am supremely skilled at creating the how, the mechanism for making whatever it is that I'm going after work, and then asking God to bless it. Much like when Abraham and Sarah, when Abraham had Ishmael, he says to God, oh, that you would bless Ishmael, that he would walk before you all his days. He had created a mechanism in his own understanding and then went to God and said, and by the way, would you bless this? Because you said I'd be the father of many nations. Saul was another example where he was supposed to wait for Samuel to come and do the sacrifice, and Samuel was late. How often do we think God is late? So he took it in his own hands. He offered the sacrifice, and the minute he finished, Samuel showed up. And then Saul, instead of admitting that he had done something wrong, says, would you just bless the sacrifice that I just made? So living under law is about we create the mechanism and then we go to God and say, please put your favor on this. Under grace, we leave the mechanism up to God. And his mechanisms are weird. Really weird. Think about Gideon going to the Midianite army. He's got about 300 guys. And he takes a torch and a pitcher. And they stick the torches under the pitcher. They surround the enemy camp. And when the trumpet blows, they smash the pitchers, the torches are, are all alight, and they shout, for the Lord and Gideon, and they stand in their place. And that's how they want to conquer 
the army of Midian. And it works because God moves in the army and sends confusion and they end up killing each other and Gideon's men are standing around on the hill watching this action happen. No man could ever come up with that mechanism. That's a God thing. Mary, when the angel comes to her, hey, you're going to have a baby. No, don't worry about not having a husband, not knowing a man. I'll make it work for you. And she says, okay, be it done to me according to your will. I'd love to have that kind of faith. And then, of course, Isaac becomes the son of the promise long past the age of people being able to have children. Under law, I am continually measuring progress towards my goal because that's how I know I'm being successful. And what it results in is that everything for me is a race. Get there as fast as I possibly can and then start the next one and the next one and the next one. So again, because this side is all about doing, I'm constantly doing and not sitting still to listen to what maybe God would have to say. On this side, progress is actually not an indicator of success. So you may not even need to measure it. Because really, what I'm learning is that it's not a race. It's a day-to-day-to-day journey of soaking in his presence, of walking with God and letting him be the guide to take you where he wants you to go. So on this side, circumstances as they're working out, prove you're doing it right. Whereas under grace, circumstances just are what they are. They don't prove anything. So sure, I know this. But what side do you think I live on most of the time? Yeah, that's the side. I'm really good at it. My comfort zone and my natural place is, is that side, by personality, by training, by background. So, so back to the health plan. When I pick an arbitrary number, like, oh, my ideal weight is my wedding weight, I, I really have no idea if that's the right number. But the point is, in picking that arbitrary number, I now set the context for all of the things that I'm going to do after that for the counting, the measuring progress, and assessing my performance. And when those tangible things don't line up with the number that I made up, I admit it, I get discouraged and disappointed and say, so God, you started it, where are you in it? And I don't even see that I'm the one that has strayed. So my disappointment is in my misaligned expectations. So... How do I change my default setting? Clearly, what I've been doing has been my default for so long. God's been gracious to me in in beginning to expose to me how I do default to this more than I ever thought. So my, my big question is, how do I get to the place where I can do the trust fall and believe that he will actually catch me 100% of the time? There's a line in the shack that has resonated with me since I first read it. And it says, trust is the fruit of a relationship in which you know you are loved. And that's really true. If I did a trust fall with my husband or my kids, I wouldn't have any hesitations because I know that they are for me. I know that they love me. I know that they would never want to see me humiliated or hurt. So clearly, to live by the faith of the Son of God and to have that kind of trust 
is to truly have that revelation of God loving me. And as much as I thought that I had internalized it, and I think that we, we grow in that, so I have internalized it, but obviously not enough. I, I have a way to go. But something hit me just last week. You know, God speaks to us in, in words we understand. So how he speaks to me is not how he speaks to you. So he used my own language back to me last week. Um, it was kind of the language I, I um, talked about in my book where, where, uh, where I talk about essence. So years ago, and this was the trigger for writing the book, he said to me, just as I am who I am, you are who you are. You are not your performance. You are not your feelings. You are not your choices. You are Nancy. You are, period. End of story. It turned my life around because it shifted my, the basis of my identity from the things that I do from my performance to just my intrinsic value as God's creation. And I call that essence. The essence of something is the intrinsic nature that differentiates it from everything else that never changes. And it cannot be changed by external things. So we all have an intrinsic essence. This podium has an essence. Your coffee has an essence. Your pet has an essence. We all have an essence that makes us different from everybody else. So my opinion, other people's opinions can't change my essence. Circumstances can't change my essence. And what hit me last week was if I don't let other people's opinions or circumstances, if I don't, if I don't believe that that changes my essence, then why would I believe that my opinion or circumstances would change God's? And what's God's essence? God's essence is love. He doesn't have love or give love or it's not a commodity. My essence is who I am intrinsically apart from anything I do. That's his essence. You might as well, when you read your Bible, wherever it says God or Lord or Father or Jesus, say love. Because that's who he is. Which to me means he is incapable of acting in a way that's inconsistent with his innate nature. I can't act in a way that isn't me. I can try, but it won't be authentic and it certainly won't last and it's not credible. And how much more so God? So, if his essence is love, if that's who he is, then that's what I'm always going to be seeing from him. And what I see in 1 Corinthians is just a couple of things that hit me with this whole trustful thing, hit me in a way that I'd never seen before. So love, or God, is passionate. He's passionate about me and about you. He's not indifferent He's not passive. He's not distracted. When, if you were doing a trust fall, he wouldn't be checking his cell phone, checking his latest text. He'd be looking at you saying, I'm ready to catch you because he's passionate about you and me. He's relentlessly patient in bearing offenses and injuries with kindness. So God is kind. His love towards me is kind. It would be cruel to let somebody fall 
when they are trusting you to catch them. That would not be consistent with his essence. Love has no desire to make others feel inferior. Why do people pull their hands away? Why in that little gift did, did the person just go, oops? Because they're wanting to make people feel inferior. They're wanting to make people get hurt. But love doesn't want that. They want to build them up and encourage them. This one really hit me. Love is predictable. Read consistent. Never behaves out of character. So if I truly get that God's essence is love, it's not a maybe he'll catch me, maybe he won't. If you look at all of these things in the rest of 1 Corinthians 13, he will always catch me because he's predictable. He doesn't have bad days. And he's not spiteful and doesn't get any mileage out of things that others do wrong. And this one really spoke to me too. He's a fortress where people feel protected, not exposed. So when I'm doing a trustful, I am exposed and I'm feeling vulnerable and love is a fortress where I can feel safe. And this one spoke directly to my circumstances. Even though the circumstances seem to be contradicting what I believe I am called to do or, or believe is right, love is still always constant. Oh, you can't see it very well. I just wanted to circle here all the is's. When you think about essence, essence is the beingness of somebody. So God doesn't have those things. He is those things. So the foundation for trust, for me, is knowing that love has these unchangeable, inviolable properties. They don't change. Like water has properties, fire has properties, light has properties. Science study those things, documents those things. They don't change. So how much more the creator than the created? So everything in 1 Corinthians 13 is true of God all the time. Uh, and James backs that up. Without exception, God's gifts are only good. Perfection cannot be improved upon. The gifts come from the Father of lights with whom there's no distortion or even a shadow of shifting nor a hint of a hidden agenda. So circumstances don't change God's character, even if they seem contrary. They just provide an opportunity for him to demonstrate it. And when I think about shadow of shifting, I think about the moon, and I think most of you would know, we only ever see one side of the moon. That side of the moon, as, as we move, it kind of moves with it, so we're always looking at the same side of the moon. We never see what's the dark side. And I think that's a picture of, in nature, of how God is with us. He is with us face to face all the time. No matter where we move, he's looking at us, right? So we can move this way and God's right in front. And we move that way and he's right in front because there's no shadow of shifting. There's no turning his back so you see the shadow like you would the dark side of the moon. So he's given us a picture in, in astronomy of how he faces us all the time. He will never look away, which means he won't let me fall. 
So what I'm learning is if God's essence is love, if it's all those things and he's always focused on me, then the lens that I need to look at for my circumstances are the lens of love, not he's broken my trust, he's let me down, he's not faithful, he's not consistent. So when it comes to the health plan, which is the current challenge, it is not a matter of counting the pounds. Um, it's, instead of it being a diet with a specific number and a time frame, what God is challenging me to do is to see it more as a promise of a long-term lifestyle that will keep this body, which belongs to him anyway, healthy for as long as it's designed. And, you know, I'm still hoping that the weight will go down to some, some great number, um, but I'm not fixating on a number, at least not most of the time. <laughs> okay, so my new approach, when things don't work out, and in little letters, I hope, because like I said, this is a journey. It's not something that I'm perfect at, and I'm still learning, and I'm still applying it to my current circumstance. So you know the song, when you don't move the mountains, I'm asking you to move. When you don't part the waters, I wish I could walk through. When you don't give me answers as I cry out to you. I, I can't sing that song, or at least I couldn't sing that song, the part that says, I will trust, I will trust, I will trust in you. Because I'm looking at those things saying, well, why don't you move the mountains? I, I'm asking you, and, and why don't you part the waters? And why don't you give me the answers? But... But what do I do then when these things happen? Because they do happen. God doesn't owe us an explanation. And I can't, I can't always understand why a loving God would allow something that would bring me pain. Because I know how I am with my kids. I never want to see them hurt. But that's not always the best thing either. And I can't judge God's love by my own imperfect love. And I've got it turned around again because... He doesn't have to explain himself to me. He has nothing to prove because he's already proved it 2,000 years ago. So what's the response when those things are? Well, the first response is, I'm right and God has failed me, which again proves he's not trustworthy. Or the second response is, well, I'm looking at those things and I'm saying, love wants only good for me. I'm missing the big picture, and I know he is causing all things to mutually contribute to my advantage. I don't know how, but if I'm not focusing on mechanism, if I've shifted to the right side, and it's not up to me, then I, I know he will cause all things to go for my advantage. So I have to start being vigilant to deal with disappointments as they, they come. So when I'm disappointed... I'm going to be checking my expectations because that's the source of my disappointment and my plans and, and what are my actions based on. And then shine the lens of love on it to say, as I, as I did. So those disappointments I mentioned earlier, the two startups and, and various things, went back and looked at them through the lens of love. And it gave me a whole different perspective on why the money didn't come in, on why that software company tanked. It's still something that happened that I don't like, especially when I see these multi-billionaires from these multiple startups, and I go, how come I didn't? 
But love knew that it was not the best thing. It was a journey and it, that we went as far as we could and love said, that's enough. I thought the outcome was to have a software company that would rival Microsoft. Clearly, love didn't agree with that. And love never told me, yeah, you're going to be as big as Microsoft. That was my imaginings. So I'm redefining, checking my interpretation through the lens of love and asking if there's a change I need to make or something different God wants me to do. And reminding me that the story is not over yet. So I'll just share one more thing about this health plan because it makes me look foolish and it's really ironic. So the week before I started the plan, as I was journaling, God said if I fixated on the number, I would fail. But if I focused my attention on him and trusted him, it would be easy and he would see me through. That I was to relax, to let go, because I couldn't control the outcome anyway. So I was to choose to enjoy the process, to fully just be and savor new ways of eating and living. That there wasn't a goal to achieve, just life to be lived. In other words, God was telling me before I started, this is an exercise for you to live by the faith of the Son of God, to live on the right side. But what did I do? As soon as I started, I started on the left side. And my whole process for the last however many weeks has been on the left side until recently. I started fixating on the number. I started stressing over weight loss. I started trying to control the outcome. And I definitely was not savoring the new ways of eating. So I made it about the faith of Nancy, the very thing that he warned me not to do. And sure enough, the law disappoints. So he tried. He said, don't touch the stove, and I chose to touch it anyway uh, because, of course, I knew better. So just to wrap it up. The journey continues with a lot of questions. Um, as of five weeks on the health plan, I was down by 12 and a half pounds. Um, that's decent, right? It's not a pound a day, but it's, it's decent. Um, and then God issued a challenge to me that I not get on the scale for pretty much 40 days after that point. And I said, you really have a thing about 40 days, don't you? <laughs> yes, he does. <laughs> So I, um, I'm not going to get on the scale until my birthday in November. That's the milestone that he has set. And it's driving me nuts. Because I don't know how I'm doing. <laughs> I can't tell. But it's good because I need to get out of the left side and move to the right side. I want to do that. Because living by the law as I execute these initiatives is just creating disappointments and heartaches. And I'm not seeing God's results. And so he's put this health plan in front of me as a very tangible example of an approach that I will be able to use for the rest of my life for whatever else he's got for me. So there's, there's still lots that I don't know. Um, like, I don't know where measurable goals fit in. I, I've been trained to set measurable goals. And I, I, don't, I don't know where that fits. Maybe God gives me the measurement or something. I don't know. Um, I, I don't know where the whole, you know, smart goal thing fits. And if I don't have a clear picture of where I'm going, what's going to keep me going through the tough times? 
Because even Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. So I don't know how that fits. Like I have, you know, a, a vague idea, but for me, it's always been helpful to visualize. They always tell you, you know, all these sales guys, visualize and then you'll create it. So that's been my training. I don't know how to do it any other way. And then this whole being thing. You know, I'm wired to do, do, do. And this whole being thing, and those of you who are familiar with the Myers-Briggs and your perceivers, you're like, yeah, that's what it's about. But I'm not, and so it's an ongoing struggle. So lots I don't know. <laughs> but I do know this, and that is that love causes everything to mutually contribute to our advantage. Love has placed us above the reach of any onslaught. So my, my uh, focus will continue to be learning, what does that actually mean? I'm, I'm starting to catch glimmers. But there's just so much more for me to still know. So like I said, I don't have the answer, even an answer, this is just where I'm at in my journey. Thank you. Thank you, Nancy.